Write that, write that down for me, Satan. Write that down for me, Satan. everyone welcome back to write that down i'm justin nipper i edit over at fightgamemedia.com and i am a staff writer at wrestlingobserver.com and i'm back with japan's leading pro wrestling author broadcast journalist historian mr fumi saito this week we talked about the history of the national wrestling alliance the nwa in japan and talked about the influence of the NWA and how it would affect the Japanese wrestling fan base all the way from the 1950s into the late 80s um, from the era of Rikidozan into the late 80s before Giant Baba broke ties with Crockett uh, and even after that while it wasn't active in Japan it was still such a heavy influence on how Japanese fans viewed the scene and viewed the products, especially of the time. Uh, but yeah, in this episode, we went over a variety of different topics. We went, like I said, we talked about Rick Dozan and his very famous matches against Luthez. We talked about the relationship between the JWA, Kokichi Endo and Yoshino Sato, and how they worked with Jules Strongbow. I think that started in 1967. Uh, we talked about things like Dory Funk Jr. and Gene Kaniski's championship match in Japan, and a lot of talk about the perception of how people and fans view the NWA. Like, uh, imagine if the, the NWA functioned like a, like a FIFA or something, where it's more like a body representing the best of the sport, of the product in the day and people really took that to heart um what else we talk about we talked about cowboys we talked a lot about the funks and because this episode is actually we were planning to do an episode focused around the funks dory funk jr and terry funk but before we recorded we were talking and there was just so much luggage that we have to unpack before we really get into the funk episode because if you don't know the full story especially on the nwa then i don't think the story is as effective when you start learning more about terry funk and dory funk so we do talk a lot about the funks on this but yeah feel free to use this as like your uh, primer for next week's episode on dory and terry funk and dory funk senior as well um so yeah we, we talked a lot about how the funks factored in to the NWA and their influence on Japan as well. And towards the end of the episode, we talked a lot about them and Jumbo Tsuruda and Bruiser Brody and in the 70s when the funks became absolute household names in Japan. And the NWA and the NWA Championship was always a big part of that. All right, so if you haven't already, Please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed on Spotify or Apple or wherever you download your podcast because it helps the website out a ton. And the more it helps us out, the more awesome content we can put out for you guys. So please 
and thank you in advance. Also, there's a book I wrote called Stronger Than All. It's a digital match guide collecting a lot of the early first two seasons, you could say, of New Japan Strong, if you're interested in that. And it's on Kindle Unlimited, and you can buy it at the Kindle Digital Store as well. All right, that's it. Let's get into this very interesting episode on the history of the NWA in Japan. And uh, all right, today we are talking about, well, we were going to do the bio on the Funks, the legendary Funk family, of course, uh, Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. But the father, Dory Funk Sr., was part of the Japanese history, too. That mm. didn't really uh, wrestle or this Dory Funk Sr. wasn't so active, but uh, he, uh, upon Dory Funk Jr.'s very first trip to Japan back in 1969, Dory Funk Sr. came with him. With you know suit and tie and cowboy hat. Yeah, he, was, as, he was the big cowboy, and he was he was also their second on the way to the ring, and he would right, right, and suit jump and, and tie shout and, and yell. cowboy boots. I mean, suit and tie, nice suit and cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that was like a distinct, you know, Texas businessman. Yeah, yeah, and you could tell that story's father. They look so much alike. Mm-hmm. You know. And back then, Dory looked a lot more like, or maybe I don't know if it's more now, but he, they resembled each other very much so. Yeah. And second trip in 1970, the following year, young Terry Funk, blonde-haired Terry Funk came with him too. It was a, yeah, he was instant, like a real popular, you know, the, the, no heel, no baby face, just the international superstar aura they all had, the Funk family. You know how much Japanese wrestling fan loved this family thing? Mm. Father-son and- duo, the real brothers, and it started with Sharp Brothers in Japan, so. But Terry, when he came over, like you said, he had this blonde hair and a big, big, huge baby face smile. He looked like a very pure, innocent kind of star, especially compared with the rougher Dory Jr. and Sr. Well, Dory was actually quiet, you know, doesn't have much expression or I wouldn't say fire. Yeah, he had a fire, but he's like really stare blank look i mean he just worked like you know like a working machine yeah you know, quiet so. and intense yeah 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 no expression like terry funk it's like a night and day the terry funk smiles and laughs and get mad and they get so excited and run around and and gets angry and all this emotion was involved and that's terry funk i mean to this day and dory funk jr on the other hand he's like a call you know real calm older brother Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was 1969. But uh, we gotta rewind the tape a little bit because uh, we talk. We have to talk about NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. And uh, well, today's fans out there, you know, the, our you know podcast listeners out there, NWA sounds like NWA Power, who's you know Billy Corgan and all these things. Is it popular? It's it's not the same NWA we're talking about today, but yeah, I know. But the same mobile, they, you know, but yeah, they want to make it look like they are the uh, that the 
they share the same heritage or something. I believe uh, Billy Corgan owns the the belt, and I think there are some official. I mean, gold belt, right? Right. Yeah, like the lineal connection is still there still yeah that's very important because billy colgan himself says that the nwa is the the oldest existing wrestling organization there is because they, they put the lineage together and it goes back to 1948 some people or some historian or more revisionist <laughs> you know view of it want, want to take that world title all the way back to 1908 or something but the 1908 Frank Gotch against George Hackenschmidt, you know, the undisputed World Heavyweight Championship, wasn't anything to do with the NWA, you know. But uh, it was some machinic uh, of 1948, some machinic, and the St. Louis program always put together uh, on the back of the St. Louis program, they had people like Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt, uh, Joe Stecker, the Ed Strangler Lewis, that the, the the Golden Greek Jim Londers as if they were the, their former champions. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But the actual NWA, as the, the NWA we're talking about today, it was formed in 1948 after the war in Iowa, of all places. Yeah. And there was another NWA, National Wrestling Association. And uh, there's two NWA was going to, com- you know, to convert. And uh, but the then NWA champion uh, Orville Brown got the, the the car accident and couldn't wrestle. Therefore, they recognized and combined two NWA titles and combining and honored Luthes as the first champion. Luthes, that Luthes that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But NWA, oh, we gotta fast forward a little bit here because we can't talk about 70, 80 year history in one episode. But all in all, all through 50s and 60s and 70s, well into 80s, that NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, was closest thing to the to the undisputed world heavyweight champion because this most of the most of the, uh, uh, the territories all over the United States, just like every state had their own wrestling, right? You mm-hmm. know. And they were the member, there was an NWA membership, like a union, you know, like a guildo, you know, and they are, they have membership. Therefore, you can share the common world heavyweight champion and they'll travel like a traveling champion. Luthes will come into your town maybe once or twice a year. And then whenever Luthes, the world heavyweight champion, come to your town, that's instant automatic mega event. That's what the NWA was about. And also, if you are not a member of NWA and running another wrestling in your state, it would be considered outlaw promotion. That's right. Like, um, like uh, what was it in, Memphis, uh, in Tennessee with the PAFOs? ICW. Uh, ICW. Yeah. Uh, yeah, International Championship Wrestling. NWA. Well, another comp- NWA in Ohio. NWF in Ohio. Well, then as a membership, as a member of NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, that you don't recognize another World Heavyweight title. Therefore, you have your U.S. Heavyweight title or you have your Florida Heavyweight Champion or Georgia Heavyweight Champion or, you know, Gulf Coast Heavyweight Champion or Or Deep South Champion or the Sheik's U.S. Heavyweight title. Yeah. 
and uh, yeah, and therefore AWA, Vern Gagne's, you know, and AWA or American Wrestling Association, completely different organization that ran Northwest and the northern side of the states, and that was just as big, but uh, NWA was a type of organization that you know, independently uh, promoters from all over, you know. All over the world, I guess, uh, but each state, Texas, the, you know, the Tennessee, the Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, they all have regional territory that they run their own shows, you know, they have their annual calendar, calendar year to run their own show. But in the, when NWA World Heavyweight Champion comes to your town, that's your mega event. And your local champion usually will challenge, you, you know, the your NWA champion. We but saw that, this last maybe with like Ric Flair, I guess, or or until Jim Crockett mm. uh, promotion uh, signed exclusive contracts with Ric Flair and pretty much kept the world title in your territory instead of sending Ric Flair over to all over the world. Yeah. But the wrestling war was on that uh, Vince McMahon's version of WWF running all over station nationwide, that Jim Crockett promotion, NWA promotion countered that, you know, like Boston, Baltimore, Meadowlands, you know, whatnot. And uh, yeah, so that, that Jim Crockett needed to keep Ric Flair as your own champion to counter that. And around the same time, um, and, you know, all the NWA territories, Saint Louis, you know, even the central states or the Florida, Georgia, it, it, all these smaller NWA territory start closing shops. Yeah. So and Jim Crockett gotten so much bigger um, by competing WWF. And but eventually Jim Crockett promotion had to sell it to. Ted Turner TV, you know, to you know Ted Turner's, you know, big company. Therefore, that becomes WCW in '88. But uh, until then, NWA existed outside of your wrestling company, company, and uh, it was like an organization that recognized uh, World Heavyweight Champion, uh, like a NW, National Wrestling Alliance, worked like a, as as a governing body of professional wrestling. That's what I'm trying to get to. Could you compare it to something like FIFA and soccer? Oh, probably similar, mm-hmm. similar. Like but a board, FIFA, almost. Yeah, but it was FIFA or something. Every single organization can join. But they picked, you know, NWA board handpicked who can be member and who can't, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Giant Baba was part of NWA, but Anthony Inoki couldn't get in for years. Right, the politics that came along with it. Yeah, and then also they recognize one promotion in one geographic area. But that is all against your free enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or like blackballing certain wrestlers or blackballing certain outlaw promoters. Therefore, don't be friends with them or you'll be enemy too kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was they were doing that kind of operation all through the 50s. And well into sixties, yeah, yeah. And not every city was the same. Not every city could, you know, a big city back then, like Detroit, could possibly host two different companies in around the same time, and there would be, yeah, possible not success. In Florida. 
Right. It's it's different. It's hard to compare it exactly to Japan too, because the scene and because of how it's geographically and also set up is American promoters in sixties and early seventies didn't really recognize Japan as big market. It just does Baba run it or does who who is Antonio Inoki kind of thing, right? You often hear old timers talking about it, and they just refer. They don't talk about any company. They just talk about going to Japan, like there's going uh, to Japan. NWA, there's you know, there's these territories, and then there's Japan. There's no all Japan. There's no new Japan. It's just well, Japan. IWE at the time, like a third company. Yeah, mm. that too. Yeah, when I when I was in state, you know, in early eighties, you know, covering things, you know, as as a wrestling journalist. When I went to shows, you know, I was always asking, all right, this is I work for Japanese company, you know, magazine, right? So, Baba or Inoki? So, it's a magazine that covers both, right? But they had to assume. Do you work for Baba or do you work for Inoki? It's like, it's like what? Right? See, and that's still something that I don't know if fans really realize. That. I mean, this is what's, what we were taught is that there are boundaries. There are lines that you can't cross at times or you can. I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the ethics are very gray because it was all up to who is in charge. Uh, and also wrestling being more um, closed society as a whole. Very yeah. much so. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think the one great thing about how Japan approached it is that they approached it like any other sport would. Yeah. And also, Japanese wrestling started as a mega sports event. It's not just wrestling, right. but beginning of television was the beginning of wrestling in Japan. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about like 1951, 1952, 1953, that, that the beginning of television, beginning of wrestling, and the Japanese wrestling always had network television budget. Therefore, mm. on, on regular television and in early 50s, right when people start buying TV television set at your home, some people didn't even have TV at home in the 50s that the, whomever had the, the your neighborhood, I mean you in your neighbors, Mr. So and so has a TV. Let's go watch watch you know wrestling or baseball or sumo at their house, you know, like uh, like your neighbor uh, neighborhood entertainment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, or people would walk down to the electronics store and watch in the window. Yeah, or like a ramen house, soba house, noodle house, mm. or bars, or like a TV night, mm-hmm. that this wrestling night that you have to buy ticket to get in. Sure. <laughs> to watch television or order, you know, order food or have noodle, you know, uh, delivered to you. Therefore, you can come and watch <laughs> wrestling. And um, yeah, back, to, yeah, back well, to. And, oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. Back to NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. The very first world heavyweight champion who, who traveled to Japan was, of course, Luthes, 1957. So he was the NWA champion at that time, right? Yeah, 1957. The official right. NWA champion, because I know when he would come back and the belt that he would use later on wasn't that same NWA belt. <laughs> okay, yeah, because it's like uh, Luthes was responsible of like creating his own spinoffs, you know. Right. I mean, it was yeah called it like the world title, and I was always confused when I would watch if it would is I would go is that the NWA title or is, <laughs> is it a variation? When when Luthes and NWA were together, it's the NWA World Champion Luthes, <laughs> but when they were not politically together. Well, Luthes will still travel around the world on his own and refer 
as a, either world champion or international champion, wherever he went. Mm, that's that's clear, like Lucas's nick, yeah, nickname. Mm. Yeah. Or he'll be always, always will be introduced as either world champion Lucas or international heavyweight champion Lucas. Mm-hmm. And nobody, you know, dispute that. Mm. But anyhow, that the 1957 very first trip Lucas had uh, to Japan, it was NW World Heavyweight title. But interestingly enough, it, the, N, the name NWA or initial NWA was never mentioned at the time. Huh. Well, uh, the Japanese press were not aware that there were more than one organization in America. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, like a boxing, you know, now they say it's either IBF world champion or WBC world champion or WBO world champion that the people are aware that there are more than one, you know, governing body or the, or, or the, the organization. But at the time when Luthes traveled to another state or another country, probably NWA name didn't really make much of a difference. When Luthes comes over, that's your world heavyweight championship match. Right. Yeah, it was then, thought of yeah. more of an idea than a company. Yeah, that uh, 1957 other organization existed, and also we have to be aware that the 1957 November was the time that the Lutet had a very first trip to Japan. June of 1957, NW World Title already, you know, started, you know, splitting in in mm-hmm. June of 1957 in Chicago. Edward Carpentier beat Lutet for the for the title, right? Then right after that, uh, the Carpentier started traveling all over the States and Canada as world heavyweight champion. In the meantime, Luthes still travels all other parts of the country as champion too. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They did settle the score up in Montreal that the Luthes went over on uh, on Edward Carpentier and, and then unified the title at the time. But it didn't stop Carpentier and his people from traveling other part of the country and dropping the title, therefore, that another spin-off of the World Championship will, will, will be born. I mean, in Boston, it'll be in in New Mexico, it'll be in California, uh, also, of course, Montreal too. And uh, yeah, so if you beat Luthes in 19, you know, like a late 1950s, you'd be recognized as, cha- as a world champion elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, in the middle of that, Luthes came to Japan in November of 1957 as a world heavyweight champion and defended title against Ricky Dozen. And the very first one was at the Korakuen Stadium. That doesn't exist anymore. That the, they they have Tokyo Dome now, right? But uh, there's the same location. Well, it was about 30, 40 yards you know, away. Not exact same spot, but within the same uh, that the uh, that the Korakuen complex. There was a baseball stadium, outdoor baseball stadium called Korakuen Stadium at the time. That was a home of Yomiuri Giants baseball team. They had their very first wrestling show at the baseball stadium uh, that was Luthes against Ricky Dozen. And uh, sure enough, 60 minute, you know, uh, Broadway. And uh, the following day went to Osaka and Osaka had, the, the, they did that at this big swimming pool that can hold 20,000 people. They did another 60 minute. And of all people, yeah, I mean, Ricky Dozen, superstar, national hero at the time, right? It was Ricky Dozen's sto- story to chase 
uh, undisputed world heavyweight champion, uh, the, the championship, and that the kingpin, Luthes, finally came to Japan. Like it was a huge, huge deal. And uh, I think it was good that Ricky Dozan didn't beat the champion to become champion at the time. Because there's more to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, um, 1954, Ricky Dozan beat uh, Masahiko Kimura to become Japan heavyweight champion, huh? Mm. In 1955, he beats King Kong from Singapore to become Asia uh, heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. And following year, he beat somebody like, somebody like Tom Rice, somebody to become Pacific uh, Pacific Oceans heavyweight champions, one by one, Japan heavyweight champion, Asian heavyweight champion, Pacific Coast uh, heavyweight champion. And then you move up to World Heavyweight Championship. They, oh, at the time, all, all the Japanese press, regular newspapers still covered uh, wrestling results as a, a, on, on their sports section. And it was that the, the my, it was so 1950s that Ricky Dawson, your national hero, that the uh, wrestling's you know superstar, is finally challenging Luthes for the title. And I think it was good not to beat the champion, huh? I think. Yeah, I mean, it created a, a whole new story and struggle for Ricky Dawson, who was so kind of, he was invincible for what seemed like a while. He was the big. Uh, I mean, yeah, and if you sure were to stay like four that. years later, yeah, four years later, later, nineteen fifty-eight, that uh, at, at the Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium, Ricky Dozen finally beats Luthes and brings back international heavyweight title this time. And nothing to do with NWA, right? But uh, and this is like a this just a different kind of theory to this title switch that the AP. And UPI, you know, that news feed, mm-hmm. they sure. were reporting this Luthes against Ricky Doza match at the Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium wasn't even the title match. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was reported differently overseas. And different I mean, magazines. Here, yeah. And different, yeah. And But the Ricky Doza came back without belt and saying that the, actually the gold belt was owned by Luthes personally, that the beating him doesn't mean that I could take the physical belt back home. I didn't have enough money to buy the belt. All right, some people bought it. And uh, it was said uh, that the title Ricky Dozen beat, you know, got from Luthes by beating him at the, Los Angeles, in the Olympic Auditorium was another championship that Luthes, Luthes held at the time. It was called International Heavyweight Title. Okay, then Ricky Dozen will hold that international champion as the biggest belt in Japan until the day he died, you know, hmm. for another five years until 1963. Anyhow, that's also be you know can be considered a spin-off of Luthes' title, huh? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because that international heavyweight title you know stayed in Japan and it's part of today's old Japan's triple crown. That's kind of been the tradition too. I know that you know, like the zero one title still uses that replica, the AWA. AWA, that the Nick Balkwin called, you know, mm. the title. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. Yeah, it's very important. If it wasn't for NWA, that the big aura of the undisputed governing body of professional wrestling, Inoki wouldn't have created IWGP. It had to compete somehow, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the whole three years big storyline that that uh, Inoki is trying to, you know, well, basically conquer the world. You know, that uh, drop all the existing title and uh, we'll, we'll be competing in one big tournament, IWGP tournament, nineteen eighty three, to create the undisputed real world championship. But that's 1983. Let's talk about, and we have to talk about history of IWGP sometimes, okay? Hmm. But the NWO, we still haven't got to Dory Funk and Terry Funk. Because <laughs> there's so much to unpack before they even. Yeah, because NWA aura still exists in, this, you know, in Japan. You know, that uh, as a closest championship, as a championship, closest thing to the undisputed world heavyweight title. And also National Wrestling Alliance being the biggest and more, the, the dominant, dominant too, but the, the, what, what would be the word for it? Like more authorized and authorized mm-hmm. or established. Official. Yeah, uh, establishment in the wrestling industry itself. And uh, the world heavyweight title that everybody recognized in the world, like people knew, or the Japanese press at the time who were aware that there were other organizations like AWA or WWA in Los Angeles. But uh, this Luthes NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, Alliance title was it, you know, the just establishment, yeah. And uh, that that this you know NWA this aura thing still existing you know older fans you know brain to this day you know when I dispute NWA story you know like older fans get mad at me sometimes How no come? no no NWA was it wow so they're yeah, still attached yeah yeah kind of like your Babe Ruth or. Yeah, like doesn't matter how many you know heavyweight superstar boxers came out after, but there's like your Sonny Liston or Floyd Patterson or maybe Muhammad Ali too. But the today's boxers don't mean shit, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Yeah, something like that. So Luthes and NWA, you know, meant the same, and that was it. And Ridosan could beat him. Then let's forward. A few more years, or oh, to be exact, about uh, seven, eight years. Be, the, the 28-year-old Dory Funk Jr. as new NWA World Heavyweight Champion, beating Gene Koniski that year. Gene Koniski, okay, between Ruthess, there was Dick Hutton, uh, there's a Pat, O'Con- Pat O'Connor, there's Buddy Rogers, right, and then back to Ruthess. But uh, Pat O'Connor, who came to Japan, but ne- not as a champion. Buddy Rogers, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, never came to Japan. Not just as a champion, but never had Japan tour. I mean, interesting enough, right? Hmm. And uh, and title was back to Luthes. The Luthes, little aged, you know, Luthes, you know, kept travel, you know, coming to Japan, which is good. And uh, at one point, Luthes, non-champion Luthes, came to Japan like in 1965 and challenged. Giant Baba's international heavyweight title, and he put Baba over clean. Therefore, Baba is so established as this undisputed international uh, heavyweight champion. That same belt Ricky Dozan had, and now Bob, you know, 1965 version of Giant Baba beat Luthes. I mean, people don't have any doubt, you know, that uh, he is it. And champions like Bruno San Martino from New York. 
1967 and 1968. Gene Knisky, NWA champion at the time, comes to Japan 67 and 68. They they both challenged Baba for the for their international title instead of their defending their own world title. Interesting, right? It made it seem by that point that that was the one, that was the title, that was the most important thing. Baba's international title, yeah. By then, yeah, yeah, but. It was not until 1967 that uh, the one reason was, though, this organization that uh, JWA had the partnership with, that the company WWA in Los Angeles, uh, World Wrestling Associate or Worldwide Wrestling Associate, some some books really like WWA World Wrestling Association there's uh, a different name for it but it was WWA uh, organization uh, that the promoter Jules Strombo uh, in California that was a company that had a partnership with Japanese wrestling you know, that the JWA at the time so they were recognizing WWA as their world organization then not much for NWA, right? But WWA uh, became member of NWA uh, in 1967, and JWA too became membership, you know, had a first time membership. Uh, not the company, but these were individual names that becomes member of NWA. It was Kokichi Endo and Yoshino Sato, two big boss, two, two bosses of JWA who became the NWA member finally in 1967. Are you following me? Mm-hmm. 1967. So it took a while for wrestling to not just establish itself in Japan, but also, you know, become well, a part. Japanese promoter at the time didn't know the membership about NWA. Hmm. See, yeah, all the information traveled the, so slowly. And also that uh, from Ricky Dozan era to JWA, the, the Yoshino Sato and Kokichi Endo era, you know, almost like a short relief, but the American company, they had a partnership was always from California or Hawaii, mm-hmm. not all the way to St. Louis. Right. It just wasn't logistically, uh, uh, didn't make so much sense to have the relationship with a company so far away. At the time. And it, believe it or not, all the commercial plane, you know, leaving Haneda Airport will land in Honolulu, Hawaii to have more fuel, right? Ah, yeah, there was never a direct flight from Narita or Haneda all the way to New York City, Manhattan or JFK, you know, uh, not until 70s. Seriously. I mean, it's still so, hard to get even these days. Yeah. I mean, uh, Tokyo to New York. It's like their, their of flight course leaves you can. Day, but, yeah, but of course you can. It's just, you know, double the price. Anyway, yeah. 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 So America meant Hawaii or California. At the time, right. you know, Ricky Dozen spent a year and a half in San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. And all the title match was held. I mean, J- Japanese you know, related business. It was for some reason always LA's Olympic Auditorium. That was that's why it was so famous. Mm-hmm. Or at, uh, the San Francisco Cow Palace, still in California, you know. And uh, Inoki spent one, one entire year in Oregon, yeah, still you know West Coast. And a lot of title match took place. In fact, very first Luthes against Rick Dozen back in what, uh, 1955 or so, it was in Hawaii. So, how, so coming from California and going to Hawaii, from Hawaii to Tokyo was their rut, you know, at the time. Anyhow, that the, 
fast forward a little bit again, Kokichi Endo and Yoshino Sato became member of National Wrestling Alliance in 1957, I mean, 1967. Then they started recognizing NWA, I mean, like a, the organization name, NWA World Champion. Uh, Dory Funk Jr. beat uh, Gene Kaniski to become the youngest NWA World Champion. He's coming to Japan. All right, right? Mm. And in 1969, sure enough, the young NWA World Champion came to Japan with his suit and tie, with cowboy hat, with his father, Dory Sr., and he defends his title in Japan. JWA at the time, Jan Baba, Antonio Inoki were still together. No old Japan, no new Japan, still JWA. And uh, two different network carrying same company, but that would ultimately lead to the formation of old Japan and new Japan. But we didn't know that at the time. 69, uh, Dory Funk Jr., 28-year-old NWA World Heavyweight Champion, comes to Japan and defend his world title against Baba one night, against Inoki another night. And the first night was Inoki challenging the title. And people wondered about it, that the, if Inoki beats Dory Funk Jr. the first night, would the you know, new champion Inoki defend the title against Baba or what? It's like, well, that never happened. Eh? But uh, <laughs> and both night, are you with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dory Funk Jr. against Inoki. 60 minute Broadway, no fall, no pinfall, nothing. That the 60 minute no falls is just they fought the entire 60 minute draw. And uh, Inoki was this close from becoming a champion, but the Dory Funk Jr. Success, you know, successfully defended his title. And following night, uh, two out of three four match, Dory Funk Jr. against Challenger Giant Baba, one, one fall each. And you know, one fall by Baba, and another fall by uh, Dory Funk Jr. And third fall, 60-minute draw, and the time expired. Therefore, Dory Funk Jr. Um, defended his title uh, against both Inoki and Baba, both nights. Then he takes the that the NW World Champion home. That would make Japanese wrestling media and the fans and the TV station, I mean, the whole Japanese wrestling industry or the wrestling community, that NWA must be something that's above Japanese wrestling, right? Mm. It's it's the, the world's best wrestling. That's where it is. It sounds oh, good. The best it looks wrestling good. and how much Japanese, you know, people love the, uh, like, uh, authorized <laughs> you know, right. establishment okay. yeah yeah no they no unofficial bootleg versions this is the ultimate wrestling organization yeah and then also that the the beginning of 1970s that uh, we do it right right mm. and sure enough following year 1970 dory funk jr came back again and again inoki and baba oh this time only inoki and Dory Funk Jr. challenged Jan Baba's international title, but uh, it was a uh, two out of three four, one each four, and the in the sixty minute time you know expired. Therefore, Baba, you know that uh, defended his international title against Dory Funk, like a, a this, <laughs> like a teeny bit above Inoki, because Inoki challenged uh, Dory Funk Jr. and one four each then time expired inoki couldn't beat dory funk jr yeah. close close but not quite enough 
Right, not close, but no cigar. But the Baba was the one who defended his international title against Dory Funk instead of him challenging Dory's title. So it was politically a little bit of Baba Inoki. Mm-hmm. That was how it, it was designed. And sure enough, 1972 comes. Inoki starts his in New Japan pro wrestling, and Baba starts Old Japan pro wrestling. And in the following year, old JWA goes down. You know, I mean, go go out of out of business. And now that Inoki has Channel 10 TBS Ahi, and Baba has Channel 4 uh, Nippon TV, and Baba and Inoki each had their primetime wrestling program on regular channel network television, and uh, therefore two major legal professional wrestling. What's interesting about NWA is that what Baba did first thing when when he opened All Japan Pro Wrestling, he got the membership of NWA. Ah, and Inoki couldn't. That was a big, big. Um, I guess it, he, he took what the remnants of JWA were, and he kind of took what they yeah, had. Yeah, that uh, the, every it. spring's World League tournament became inaugural champion carnival with mm-hmm. all Japan. You know, and, and the TV deal, the, and TV deal, and Channel Four, same channel that the Ricky Dozen had. And also that the international tag team title was revived and mm-hmm. it was held by Dory and Terry Funk. And Baba and Jumbo, then rookie Jumbo Tura, had to challenge that international tag. And that's when early 70s, Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk started, you know, making more, you know, frequent mileage, like a frequent, I mean, like a three or four trips to Japan a year, every year for the, for the next decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dory Funk and Terry Funk, so popular, like American babyface and your favorite cowboy until Stan Hansen. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And more and of he, the, it's interesting to think about the idea of the cowboy, like you said, because in American. <laughs> yeah, in in the states we have so much. They're they're not just a, it's not just the funks. There's also you know cowboy culture movies and all sorts of extensions of what it is but over in japan i think people are even more familiar with wrestlers as cowboys instead of you know like a john wayne yeah like your john wayne or clint mm. eastwood or steve mcqueen or exactly yeah. exactly so i think people when when you say cowboy oh, in japan early as 1955 you had the sky high lee or young don leo jonathan with cowboy hat on mm-hmm. yeah always had some cowboys Cowboy uh, Bob Ellis, or I mean, there's so many American wrestlers with cowboy ten gallon hat, and even the the boots, you know, like a cowboy boot looking wrestling boots. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like the snakeskin boots or uh, leather boots or something. Or like your Barry Windham style cowboy boots, mm. wrestling boots. Yeah, yeah. Um... And Terry Funk had that cowboy boots. I mean, outside the ring too. He walks around hotel with his Wrangler jeans and uh, cowboy boots, mm-hmm. and a nice-looking Western shirt or flannel shirt. That that's your cowboy, you know. <laughs> yeah, such a such a popular wrestler. Yeah. Anyhow, that the old, Giant Baba's All Japan was the company that could introduce and bring in NWA World Champion. When NWA World Champion was held by a younger Hurley Race, Hurley Race will come to Old Japan. When Jack Briscoe had a title, 
Jack Briscoe come to Japan and defend his title. All the way to Hardy Race again to to younger Ric Flair, like a first version of when he was NWA champion. Yeah, the, the Ric Flair will come to all Japan and all Japan only. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 1973 and 1974, uh, two years in a row, Inoki traveled to Las Vegas to attend NWA conference, applying for NWA membership. And that, he, his membership was denied a couple, you know, like a two years in a row. It was huge news in Japan. Oh, in, you know, Inoki and his, his new Japan could not become, he didn't have to, I mean, I mean, hindsight, right? But uh, becoming NWA member, like, I mean, like to become American establishment, sort of, like a mainstream organization of professional wrestling, you have to be a member of NWA. Baba is already member and has a membership. And uh, Inoki applied for, then it was denied two years in a row. It was like, a, right, uh, American promoters and American Wrestling Society choose Jan Baba over Antonio Inoki. That was the understanding of it. Are you with me? It's almost like when you're with the NWA, the fans think of it as like it's an almost guarantee for quality. And like you said earlier, there's that uh, Japanese desire for the to have official items, the official product. Uh, Something like that, yeah. And without that NWA stamp of approval, I think in people's minds, it's almost like if it's not NWA, it's automatically a little bit lower level, which is not the case. It's just no, perception. No, 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 not necessary. But it was like uh, we were led to believe that because Japanese wrestling magazines and Tokyo Sports and other wrestling, you know, print media at the time, like all through late 60s into 70s, early 70s into mid 70s, even later, later on, that the NWA was it. And the National Wrestling Alliance, the biggest wrestling governing body, that the Baba was like a such a good member in a good term that the wrestling magazine like a gang magazine in 70s they put a photo spread in the color page of nwa conference uh, from las vegas all the existing promoters from all over the world not just well, maybe all over the world too but the, you know california promoter or don owen from oregon that the mike club Bell from Los Angeles, that the the Sheik from G- Detroit, Eddie Graham from Florida, that the what all the central states, that the Missouri, the Harley Race, Bob Geigel, Sam Machinik, uh, all these, although even the Stu Hart from Calgary, all these people were taken in a group photo together. Oh, they are the biggest promoters in the world, right? I was reading magazines as a kid like that, and Inoki applied for the membership of NWA, which he was denied two years in a row. It's like, wow, they are the establishment, you know, establishment, and Inoki couldn't be part of it. Oh my gosh, right? And sure enough, that uh, around the same time, Inoki brought NWF champion Johnny Powers and beat him to become NWF champion. NWF sounds like, <laughs> you know, um, it was okay, but the National Wrestling Federation and from Ohio, but uh, Inoki said that uh, it's not the organization, but it's the quality of matches that that, that brings the title to your, yeah, um, I mean, I can make importance, you know, that mm-hmm. the, 
that uh, it's not the organization, but it's a champion who decides what's important. And sure enough, that Inoki held his NWF title next seven years and get all kinds of good challenger, and he beat everybody. And he's on you know the network channel, so casual fans wouldn't know the this magic NWA either, you know. And uh, yeah, one TV channel with Jan Baba. Uh, has NWA champion, and sure enough, Baba has PWF title, right? Pacific Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion. It's it's more even more confusing, you know. But uh, Inoki held NWF title on Channel 10, and Baba had PWF title on Channel 4. And which is better? We debated forever, but uh, yeah, on hindsight, each company had their own heavyweight champion. Yeah. But the NW, that made NWA above Japanese wrestling a little bit, yeah. And in hindsight, it didn't really matter for Inoki. I mean, he didn't he didn't get uh, permission to join the NWA alliance, but I think he did fine. And it yeah, pushed actually, him to yeah. w- but work. for type way. of wrestling fans at the time, like, but the establishment is with Jan Baba. And Baba right. is the only promoter that can bring in NWA World Champion, which is undisputed world title. And sure enough, one one year, in 1975, um, Baba finally beats Jack Briscoe to to become very first NWA Champion in Japan. So that's almost like a continuation of Riki Dozan's story, right? Yeah, yeah. But it was. Um, Jan Baba, who, who you know, who, who he beats Jack Briscoe on TV to become very first NWA World Heavyweight Champion in Japan. It's televised. And following week, very first title defense, he beats Jack Briscoe again. So he's an NWA champion defending his title. And at the end of the tour, Baba drops title to Jack Briscoe, the very end of the tour. But that one is not even televised. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. And huh. they stopped talking about it, you know. And the similar thing happened. But by then, 1974 on, we talked about it last week. Antonio Inoki signed partnership with Vince, Vince McMahon Sr.'s WWF. And that the New York-type superstar started coming to Inoki's New Japan. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, WWF, WWF, they also started as, I guess, you would technically call them the outlaw sort of company compared with and NWA. also spin off with from Buddy Rogers' world type, you know heavyweight title reign. Right. I mean, what yeah. Buddy Rogers was doing with WWF wasn't unlike what Luthez would end up doing with his world title. So I mean, and also being a champion in New York City in Madison Square Garden, it's almost just as big, if not bigger, in general public's eyes, huh? Mm, it means a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that Buddy Rogers quickly dropped the title to Bruno, you know, younger, sensational superstar drawing card Bruno San Martino, who holds in the WWF title for the next eight years, right? So, but it was interesting that the Inoki signed a partnership with WWF and Vince McMahon's seniors wrestlers. Their superstars start you know, making appearance for New Japan Pro Wrestling. What's interesting is though, Jan Baba and Bruno San Martino, such a good friends that he honored the friendship. Bruno San Martino never came to Inoki's New Japan 
against Vince's senior's word. That's also interesting. That I think is I, I guess it's unprecedented because I can't think of any other time in history over there where that happened, um, where there was a relationship with a foreign company and that star from the foreign company would go to Japan but work with another company. Yeah, that even after New Japan's partnership with WWF and Vincent James McMahon, Bruno San Martino kept coming to All Japan's tour. Yeah, just him. And him and he and, he and probably Dominic Dinucci or somebody like that. Mm. That's it. But other WWF superstars, like superstar Billy Graham, somebody like that, is New Japan Bond. Under the Giant, of course. Yeah, Under the Giant was a regular with New Japan. Yeah, at the time. Very interesting, huh? but complicated, but very interesting. But NWA was it in Japan for a long time. Uh, the Dory Funk, when Terry Funk had the belt, Terry Funk would come to Japan and defend title against Jumbo Tsuda. Yeah. Um, Hardy Race, of course. Uh, he was regular with all Japan. What was the Hardy Race relationship with Giant Baba? When he was champion or when he's not champion, Hardy Race was always regular with all Japan pro wrestling. Yeah. Aged Pat Okana, or somebody like a Ken Mantel, who had an NWA Junior Heavyweight title, who'd come to All Japan and defend his title. Yeah. Were there and any there was other? No, uh, yeah. Oh, I was going to ask: Were there any other um, around this time? I'm talking like the '70s, generally. From the NWA, were there any other faces or champions that people really began to resonate with, or or began? Really well, following at the time, this? NWA, NWA World Heavyweight Champion. They usually each champion usually had pretty long reign, you know, like a two to three years. So when Hardy Race was champion, he was champion for a long time. And younger Ric Flair, the first reign was like just a, just a few months, right? Then we went back to title, you know, Hardy Race again. And at the very first Starcade, Ric Flair beat. Hardy race in cage match situation, and then, then Ric Flair started coming over to Japan, all, all Japan pro wrestling initially. And Giant Baba wouldn't be challenged, aged Giant, Giant Baba wouldn't be challenging for the world title anymore. It was Jumbo Tsuda's era that uh, Jumbo would be challenging Ric Flair, yeah, instead. Or somebody like Tenru would be challenging Ric Flair, Great Kabuki would be challenging Ric Flair for the title. But interesting enough, though, that the, when when NWA becomes WCW, WCW signed a partnership with New Japan Pro Wrestling, and all of a sudden Ric Flair coming to New Japan Pro Wrestling, and there was a big time Tokyo Dome match, if you remember, mm -hmm. Tatsumi Fujinami against Ric Flair, Starcade Japan. Yeah, and so another uh, messy title the change there too. Yeah, so the over the years that the affiliate, you know, affiliation and the partnership changes, you know. Depends on where you are in the 80s or 90s, you know. And at the time, interesting enough that 1983, Anto Inoki established his IWGP, right? That whole new concept, International Wrestling Grand Prix, to recognize the one common world title or something. But the Ric Flair started coming over as the NWA champion. And then in the very early part of the 90s, and the people didn't really distinguish NWA world title and WCW world title. It was the one and the same mm. around 1990. Yeah. Very confusing, right? 
Yeah, but it was and also then, more fluid back then. It was a lot more could happen where I guess in the past couple decades, we know the deal. We kind of know the boundaries and it's a, a little bit tighter with these relationships and, and business partnerships and strategies. And the second annual 1992 um, G1 Climax, it was Masa Chono who beat Rick Rude to become NWA world champion in Japan. Right. It was a WCW featured, you know, there were WCW talent in, in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting that uh, people were confused. Younger fans look at, looked at Chono as a new champion and new superstar, but like older generations fans was scratching their heads. Is it really NWA or the title? Are we it was watching? confusing on uh, American television too, because Chono would eventually have the traditional big world title. And then they introduced another world title at around this time. Do you remember that? Yeah, the then Bill Lex Watts. Luger. Yeah. yeah, Bill Watts' era made it even more confusing. Right. Mm. And at the time, it was interesting enough that the Giant Baba was the first one to drop NWA affiliation. Yeah. Right. Was that when they... Um, it was like 1988 when they went over... It was when Crockett went over to WCW, the, the rebranding, and Turner bought it. Yeah, and then pretty soon Jim Crockett himself was out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there was a Jim Ward era, there was a Kip Fry era, and Bill Watts era, until Eric Bischoff era, right? Mm. Yeah. And I guess from that point on, from when Baba cut ties with Crockett and WCW NWA, that was when the NWA... Mm, well, pretty much relationship. was old, and also nwa itself was old news right. in america too by yeah. then yeah yeah it was wcw and also by then that old japan Jan baba created triple crown unifying all international title pwf pacific wrestling federation title and un that the united national title that the three different singles championship combined into triple crown that's all japan's world title Right. Mm. So, yeah. And then uh, no NWA champion, you know, or WCW superstar made trip to all Japan. And that's when all Japan, Jan Baba established their own American crew. Like you had Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody, you know, coming back from New Japan. And you had your Stan Hansen, the Bruiser Brody, the, you had your Terry Gordy, you have Steve Williams, Danny Spivey, Johnny Ace at the time. And it's like 15, 20 American wrestlers who makes regular trip to Japan as all Japan American roster. Mm. And yeah. I think most fans, mm. even today, and not just in Japan, but overseas view those foreign wrestlers as all japan foreign wrestlers yeah american roster yeah mm, they really carved out roster and yeah. dynamite kid davy boy smith sometimes mm -hmm. and johnny smith that uh yeah yeah oh pa patriot a little bit later on gary albright a little bit later on vader too mm -hmm. and uh yeah all japan had Richard their own Slinger. american roster yeah, yeah, yeah. Own American roster. And New Japan always had their own. I mean, New, Inoki's New Japan always had their own American roster, too. You know, starting from like Tiger Jeet Singh era and had Abdul, Abdul the Butcher for a while. You know, they stole all, you know, Abdul the Butcher from all Japan. And uh, yeah, um, 
a lot of American talent that traveled to New Japan. And also New Japan had heavier Japanese roster. You know, under Inoki, there was Riki Choshu and Tatsumi Fujinami. And you had Akira Maeda, Nobuhiko Takada, you know, the Fujiwara, the Yamazaki, the Tiger Mask, that uh, all kinds of heavy uh, Japanese-oriented roster with New Japan, the super strong machine. Then there was Three Musketeer era, the Keiji Muto, Masachono, and the Hashimoto, Hase, Kensuke Sasaki, all Japanese superstars with New Japan roster. And uh, yeah, so uh, a little bit different. <clears throat> New Japan is more Japanese oriented. Oh, of course, you had Vader. Initially, you had a Bam Bam Bigelow. You had people like uh, Scott Norton, uh, the, the, uh, what's his name, that uh, former Uf- UFC champion, that turned, Don Fry, yeah. Don Fry. That became, yeah, that became professional wrestler in Japan, and he was with them. And uh, yeah, so not much of NWA affiliate <clears throat> all through late 80s into 90s. Yeah, but I'm, both companies ended up creating their own american roster huh yeah and their own identity in general and it seems like and the big difference not like an nw affiliate all through 70s yeah yeah i mean end of our japanese wrestling developed it it evolved with the nwa and nwa was a big part of japanese wrestling when japanese wrestling got off the ground and actually, and, all through 70s and 80s, well into early part of 90s, Dory Funk Jr. was booking American American talent to all Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Dory Funk Jr. was like a part of the office. Yeah. He even still shows up on some of the, um, <clears throat> what are like a, the PWF announcement. Yeah, president. Yeah, right. Yeah. To read the piece of uh, saying like, uh, yeah, uh, recognize this match as official uh, triple crown title match. Decision by PWF, PWF president, Tori Funk Jr. Something like that, right? Mm, it's amazing. That. Up until recent years, yeah. I think even just a year or two ago, I think he did one uh, for all but Japan. it's not a but it's not Jan Baba's all Japan right. pro wrestling. Yeah, because there was something between all Japan, Jan Baba, and Dory Funk Jr. And for quite five six year period, that the Dory Funk Jr. wasn't associated with Jan Baba's all Japan. But what after Jan Baba's, uh Miss Mrs. Baba and Mrs. Dory Funk and all these things, yeah. Oh, this was in the seventies, or this was later on? No, the nineties. I see, I see. Yeah, hmm. yeah. But after Baba, that there was a Muto's era of all Japan, that the Dory Funk was associated with all Japan again, and uh, even after all, the Muto's version of all Japan, that the Dory Funk Junior was associated with as a president of PWF. Yeah. Hmm. But there is no PWF office anywhere. <laughs> I don't right? think has PWF ever run a show. Not quite. I don't and think it's. Uh, we were yeah. led to believe that uh, it was the Lord James Blair's was a president right. of PWF from Hawaii, and there was no such thing as PWF office in Hawaii, or that uh, PWF never really ran their own show in Hawaii. No, it's as long okay. as as long as Lord Blears showed up at the uh, All Japan shows, which he did for for years to oh, do those decades, yeah, for years yeah. and years, he'd always be. Uh, I think a lot of fans that 
uh, are younger than, and even me, I didn't notice exactly who the hell this guy was until later on. He was for a while just this quite old wrestler who would yeah, read 50s, the introduction. Yeah, 1940s and 50s superstar from, yeah, who settled, settled in, in Hawaii and had a mansion in Hawaii and was associated with Giant Baba and who became almost a figurehead president of PWF. Who comes over and read that thing? for the title you know, like a title match witness yeah so if you're a, a big fan and you're familiar with all these matches throughout the 80s and 90s you've definitely seen lord james got lord james players come in come in the comes in the ring with suit and tie and read that we'll recognize this title you know title match as an official title and this and that sanctioned by pwf yeah mm. Um, that yeah. again, that's like a Japanese society as a whole. You need establishment, huh? Mm, uh, authorized, authorized. Excuse me, authorized, uh, authorized yeah. officials, staff. It's not just playing around in the backyard. It's the real deal, and they wanted to present it like <laughs> yeah. It's a different, different way, but a very similar, similar philosophy. Carl Gotch was always part of New Japan for a long time. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it was recognized by Karagach, you're a real deal, you know. And every single wrestler from Antonio Inoki, Fujinami, Riki Choshi to Sayama to all the way to Maeda and, and, and Takada, they were all Karagach students, you know. And uh, that made New Japan, like, uh, like not politically, but like a style of wrestling that, that gave New Japan Pro Wrestling more legitimacy because they were all Korgach student. That uh, when I was a kid, <laughs> believe it or not, a lot of most of the wrestling fans in Japan in the 70s and 80s, that the New Japan's Inoki's wrestling is real and Giant Baba's Old Japan is a show business or something right. like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's great that you can. Today, we can go on something like YouTube and you can watch the difference between, like you were saying, the Carl Gotch school of thought versus the what All Japan would kind of champion, the NWA old school American style. And I think a lot yes. of the best uh, All Japan matches, if you watch anything with Jumbo Tsuruta in it, I mean, he doesn't wrestle even like a typical Japanese wrestler. To me, he wrestles like a big American heavyweight. American wrestler. style, huh? Just yeah. like a Bruiser Brody, or uh, uh, just like a—I mean, I, I don't know who to compare it to. It's somebody who is almost the size of Big John Stud, but could wrestle extremely well and could yeah. jump. And actually, Bruiser Brody's favorite opponent was always Jumbo Tsuda. Isn't that work right? Yeah. Well together. And yeah. isn't that one of the and only also people he still playing with this establishment idea all well into eighties that it was Jumbo Tsuda who beat Nick Bakwinkel for the. For AW World Title in Japan, Ooh. he actually takes his AW title back to Minneapolis and travels around the whole Midwest, even San Francisco too, or Salt Lake City or Denver. He def the Jumbo defends his AW title until he finally drops the title in St. Paul, Minnesota, to Rick Martel. But uh, it was Jumbo who actually became AW champion and defended his title in American soil. That made Jumbo Tsuda, a very, very legitimate world, you know, world champion. Yeah. That was like in the very 1984. Yeah. Wasn't he one of the only people to have a pinfall victory over Bruiser Brody too? An official one? Yeah. Yeah. Early Brody, like 79 Brody, 1980 when Brody, he put Giant Baba over 
uh, for the final of champion carnival and stuff like that. But 1981 on, Brody never did any jobs. And even after Bruiser Brody switched side in 85 to New Japan, and in 1985, Inoki and Bruiser Brody had seven single matches in one year, all big house, you know, that uh, it's all big show, right? That uh, mm. Sumo Palace or Osaka Castle Hall, that all this Sapporo, the Hiroshima, all these big, big shows, Inoki against Bruiser Brody, not even title match, but it's, it's big enough, the single match between Inoki and Bruiser Brody, and they never even had finish. Isn't that amazing? And they seem Inoki, like they didn't need one. Well, but Inoki still did the business with Bruiser Brody mm. without, I mean, you would think in 1985, Inoki, you would beat anybody and everybody, right? Mm. But with oh, Bruiser yeah. Brody, they went on and did the seven single match series that had just double count out or DQ finish and whatnot. You know, 60 minute time, you know, the Broadway, everything, but Inoki didn't beat Brody. Mm. Then went, Brody went back to went back to the old Japan at the end of 1987 and summer of 1988. Uh, the Triple Crown, not even Triple Crown, then it was the international title because the Triple Crown wouldn't form until 1990. It was 19, summer of 1988. It was international heavyweight title champion. Bruiser Brody and that challenger was Jumbo Tsura and he had a super Jumbo Tsura had a superplex, boom, and for the first time, the, everybody pretty much that clearly clearly witnessed on television match that Bruiser Brody was pinned by Jumbo Tsura, one two three. It was big thing, real big thing, because mm. Bruiser Brody wouldn't do it, right? But it was Jumbo oh, who pretty much that the Bruiser Brody choose to have i guess the whomever he wants you know wants to put over clean he had to be jumbo tsura that the jumbo tsura sure enough pinned bruno brody right in the middle of the mat in the ring one two three and what was interesting though it was his last trip to japan oh wow yeah 87 88 88 okay so it was yeah when was that it was like march or uh that was like uh yeah like what like a may or june okay. yeah only then two months three months later brody was stabbed mm. and was murdered that was his last trip wasn't that interesting in a lot of ways you look at it and you think jumbo is kind of the perfect opponent for for brody because for one thing they're about the same size yeah but on the other hand they're total they're the same age group same age group say like kind of same weight class um but same height same height but you had bruce brody who was a chaotic crazy heel and you had intense olympian uh jumbo and when you think about it he, you go okay that's that's the one guy who could probably get one over on bruiser brody if you think about the psychology behind it it's it's got to be jumbo doesn't it yeah and then also brody's favorite opponent all along was jumbo Tsura, far ahead of everybody else Hmm. Brody one time told me that uh, he really thought Jumbo Tsura was better wrestler than Antonio Inoki. Wow, you know? Wow, I'm, that's pretty amazing to say. But what did he base that on? Did he base that on just you know in the ring, or 
is he talking about um, entertaining? Or? Like, uh, I think Bruiser Brody looked at Inoki as more of a local hero, un- untouchable hero. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, but and Jumbo uh, for was res- a, a as a wrestler, yeah, as a wrestler, Bro- Brody would choose Jumbo over Inoki. I mean, if when it, I mean, if if you have one guy who you got to do the job. That would be Jumbo instead of Inoki. Mm. And when Brody put Jumbo Suda over clean in the middle of the ring, one, two, three, and they dropped the international heavyweight title, and that was his last trip to Japan. It's almost uh, as if he knew the fate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's something we have to sit down and really talk about some, sometime. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Next week, you know what we should do? We should continue this, and we should talk more about the Funks. Yeah, the Funks was was a hero, and and the brother, I mean, real brother, Dory Funk and Terry Funk, that the, the Funks tag team established tag team tournament and mm-hmm. the international tag team title and the tag team wrestling in Japan. And then the, the classic Dory Funk, Terry Funk against Abdul the Butcher and the Sheik. Oh my gosh, classic. And Dory Funk, Terry Funk against Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen together. Yeah. And there was uh, the historical match that the Stan Hansen came in as a second of Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snooker tag team. And Brody and Snooker beat the Funks to win the, uh, the tag team tournament in December in you know, 81 thing. And uh, it was Dory Funk and Terry Funk that really established tag team wrestling in all Japan side. You know, every December they had the real tag team tournament thing, right? This, you have this Billy Robinson host, host Hoffman tag team or uh, all these a very famous tag team, you know, came to Japan, all Japan side. It was always, you know, Dory Funk and Terry Funk was defending. It's just it's like a tag team wrestling from Japan side. You know, he, Dory Funk, Terry Funk was American team, but it was like American, all Japan tag team hmm. duo. Yeah. And you, there was one year, Giant Baba and Dory Funk as a team, if you remember. Yeah. You could also, I mean, maybe you could say this, but you, during the 70s, it's almost like the Funks and Abdul the Butcher and the Sheik were some of the first uh, hardcore wrestlers. We got to see a first hardcore type of wrestling in those matches. Yeah, it's like a TV standards was like different, like eight o'clock at night in your home, regular channel. They were bleeding on television. <laughs> mm, this wasn't Olympic style wrestling. This was fighting. Yeah, with Abdul the Butcher and the Sheik with foreign objects poking right. Terry Funk's arms. <laughs> and you, if know? you you can go back now and watch these matches, and you look at the crowd, and you look at everybody's crowds. Everybody's eyes are so wide. Everybody's kind of frozen almost they're either oh, frozen like, wow, they are killing terry funk oh my gosh <laughs> <Right>. you know <laughs> and, and i mean terry funk geez, i mean the the way he would sell for the during yeah. those matches especially it's like he was getting murdered and it, it was like a, it was making abdul the butcher the biggest heel but at the same time they were that was the match it was it was making terry funk the biggest baby face ever mm. yeah 
I mean, he he already had the fans. He already had them, and at this point, I mean, there was so much empathy pouring out for the guy, and so it's just a classic. Yeah, very first temporary. true American babyface in Japan was Terry Funk. Uh, Billy Robinson a little bit, you know, because he wrestled so clean, right? Billy Robinson. But it was Terry Funk, the American cowboy that was like always with J- Japanese side. And the, the, everybody knew that the, he, you know, the Funks trained Jumbo Trudeau to become a professional wrestler. Uh, everybody knew he was the Funks who trained Tenru to become a professional wrestler. And he was always friends with Giant Baba. And Giant Baba's gen- generation older, so he didn't really fight it, you know? And uh, yeah, the Funks was the big, big baby face with all Japan all along. I mean, all through 70s into 80s, the Funks. Mm. And Terry Funk later on switched side and helped Onita establish, you know, FMW as major company too. Terry Funk against Onita and uh, and that uh, electrified Bob Dwyer, all the all the gadgets death match, and it revived Terry Funk too. Right, it was the kind of the next chapter in Terry Funk's career. Yeah, because 1983, he retired in Japan forever, forever, forever. <laughs> yes. Remember? Mm-hmm. And it, it, that match is the, the Dory Funk, Terry Funk against Terry Funk and 21 year old Terry Gordy. That is established Terry Gordy as new sensation overnight. Then Terry Funk became regular with all Japan all through 90s, 80s and 90s. Yeah. That made the the end of the Freebirds, you know, because for, uh, you know, during the 80s, that Terry Gordy uh, uh, pretty much, you know, worked half the year in Japan, all Japan, and half the year as a Freebird in the world class, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, Terry uh, Terry Gordy had a heart in Japan that this is his regular place to pick up his 100,000, you know, just by working 15 weeks in Japan. But... uh, Terry Gordy became all Japan wrestler, pretty much, you know? Mm. I think that's what most of us remember him mostly for, is his work And when Japan. Terry Gordy was good, he was like young Terry Funk, you know? He, oh my gosh, I mean, there's not many wrestlers you could compare him to. Uh, his size and the way he moved. Uh, I... Yeah, and also, it was Terry Funk's choice. Let's have Terry Gordy over and have him work in Japan. He'll make a big star in Japan. I mean, Terry Funk had a big vision. And he retired. Terry Funk retired in summer of 1983, but he came back at the end of 84. And when he came back, he wasn't as popular because he was like, just two years ago, he had a big retirement match and people cried, right? Mm. And he believed he was a big retirement. And making comeback wasn't a big deal in, in, in professional wrestling, but it was like against the whole idea. It kind of defeated the purpose, right, almost. Yeah, and I think that in Japan, when you say you're going to keep promise and you, you don't, I think it's a different mentality. I think if, if you say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and you simply don't, I think breaking a promise is, is so much more offensive in Japan than it is over in the West. In America? Yeah, so. it took him quite a, in a few years until, he, you know, Terry Funk became super popular again. And, and you, you know, Terry Funk almost had to wait until he was 50 years old. 
and he become hardcore legend mm-hmm. with Onita's FMW and ECW at the same time. It was completely another era that Terry Funk had another career almost. Mm. Super popular. And also it was in the movie Beyond the Mat, if you remember. I saw it in the theater. Yeah, it was like a Terry Funk movie. Yeah, kind of. Terry yeah. Funk ECW movie. And it's about the yeah, Terry Funk yeah. uh, uh, retirement. Yeah, other other people were in it, like a China or, you know, Jake the Snake Roberts were in it. But it was mostly Terry Funk movie, almost, beyond the mat. And it was based around one of his multiple retirements, not the ones we talked about here. Yeah. but was... And also the, the one show he had in Amarillo. You know, 50 years of wrestling in Amarillo, Texas. He brought in people like Bret Hart, you know, from WWE and all the superstar from ECW and FMW. Yeah. I think Pillman was on it. I think there were WCW talent on it. There was tons of uh, uh, Brian Hildebrandt. Um, Yeah. Was he on? I don't know. But yeah, it was a fun movie. But the Beyond the Mat was like Terry Funk movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Terry Funk, again, was really, really popular in the 90s. And like a 53-year-old Terry Funk, I mean, another boom period. Yeah. He also, when he was back in the States in 89, he did have a, a second uh, The program was, yeah, it was with Ric Flair. Flair. Yeah, yeah, that was, right. um, that was pretty, I mean, that was very Heel version of Terry Funk in America. Mm-hmm. And he had right. his longer hair and his mustache goatee. It was a different look than and he long, had. Long tights, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the big heel. And uh, it was, the time was right. And also, he had this Terry Funk against Sabu match all through early part of the 90s, all over independent scene in America as a main event. Oh, the and there was the famous barbed wire match, too, between yeah, those two. Yeah. And 94... After he switched sides from from FMW to IWA Japan, if it wasn't for Terry Funk's uh, one night deathmatch tournament, the Cactus Jack wouldn't be Cactus Jack of today. Yeah, that no made yeah, that made Cactus Jack McFoley a real superstar in Japan and in America. And I mean, it ended up being. Not just for uh, for that, but for Mick Foley, it became his match with Terry Funk became a calling card for him, and he would end up blowing up slow, not slowly, but a couple of years after this. And that run that Terry Funk had was an important part of his career. And that's not just it's oh. one wrestler whose career he had an influence on, and that's a big one. But oh yeah, there and are that others. really changed changed part of this uh, Monday Night Raw too. The, the Mick Foley, Mankind, Cactus Jack, and Dude Love together. And Terry Funk joined the Chainsaw Charlie, if you remember. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, I witnessed, you know, that the, the Mick Foley and Terry Funk talking in a business in Japan. And, and uh, it's just like, wow. Uh, the, the Cactus Jack was like, a, he, he was a huge superstar in Japan before he joined WWF as, as a mankind. You know, that the, it took him, you know, took, uh, took WWF a while to really accept Mick Foley. Uh, and then he, they gave him mankind gimmick instead of, you know, his natural Cactus Jack character. Mm. 
but Mick Foley was influential, you know, influential enough that, that to convince WWE business that that, that he could be Mick Foley. He can be Cactus Jack, he can be Mankind, he can be Dude Love, and he even had a program with people like Stone Cold Steve Austin. Undertaker. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, Terry Funk was very instrumental in McFoley's career, yeah. And like you mentioned earlier, Onita, he was influential in Onita's career too. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, if it wasn't for Onita Terry Funk. Onita like a complete Terry Funk in the ring, yeah. I, I read that there were quite a number of Japanese wrestlers that would often stay with the Funks while they were working in the States, like, like, yeah, or or it doesn't even work territory in in Amarillo. There was no such territory in Amarillo didn't run wrestling, but the Japanese wrestler traveled to Amarillo, Texas, wanted to stay with Terry Funk at Mm. his double cross ranch. Yeah. Being a father, father figure. I once read that he, he had Mr. Pogo was was his barbecue master his griller <laughs> yeah he loved mr pogo's another game. texas american cowboy that he had this land that's like all the way to your horizon i mean all the way it's all his land i mean as hmm. far as you can see i mean like a sunrise and sunsets i mean so far away that's all the way to horizon that's all terry funk's land oh my gosh that's america yeah, it's right? not. It's it's so it's so opposite of what you see when you're walking down a, a downtown Tokyo street. It's right, so dense. Right. Uh, there's so much in a small space. Where over here, it's the opposite. Like in Texas, there's so much space and not. Yeah, much when else. you go to Amarillo and you land Amarillo downtown Amarillo, people are actually wearing cowboy boots. I mean, mm. regular people. I mean, 10 gallon hats. I mean, it's a cowboy town. Oh my gosh, you know? When I was That's a kid, it. I went on a road trip. I was like 18 or so, and I drove through Amarillo, and it was the first time I ever saw a tumbleweed. Yeah, tumbleweed? You know, the tumbleweed <laughs> that rolls across the road? Yeah, yeah, for real. Like a cowboy movie. Mm-hmm. And cacti, uh, cacti. I mean, real cactus, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, it's just, it, it couldn't be a more perfect place for the funk family to live if you're a japanese fan that's what you imagine and right? also amarillo the name the name of town amarillo is just as famous dallas or houston you know but in reality it's not as big a city no I mean, it's not but in japan amarillo is famous because of the funks it's so ironic because there's so many bigger more uh, influential big in texas you know, Houston's like the fourth biggest city in the States. Sure. But uh, uh, Texas is its own thing, too. Texas, you know, I think you could almost think of it like its own country because not only yeah, because yeah. it's big, but it has its own culture. M- culture, and yeah. Value. Yeah. And value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but the funks represent this. I mean, really, I mean, believe it or not, the funks is famous in Japan. Would you say they're a household name? Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, the Kinnik Man, uh, the, the mm-hmm. anime, Terry yeah. Man. Yeah. That's based and on the animation. Terry Funk. Yeah, like a super, a super you know, superhero Terry Man. Yeah, that's named after Terry Funk, of course. And there's even a wrestler that was inspired. Oh, Terry enough. Boy. <laughs> Terry Boy Men's Tale, yeah. yeah Who sure. used to wrestle just like Terry Funk when he was younger. Of he course. would do the spinning Carbon toe hold. I mean, You want to do it like that. The spinning toe hold, everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Just like Abdullah Kobayashi and Abdullah the Butcher. <laughs> yeah, but the Terry Funks is just as and then the the generations of wrestlers who has short trunks with star on on your butt. That's right, because it, yeah. it was the I mean, you want star. Dress, you you want to have wrestling boots just like Terry Funk. Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, yeah. Jumbo, when he started out, looked like one of the folks. Oh, yeah, that the blue trunk, red trunks with star yeah. on, on your butt. Yeah. Wrestled That's the same kind fashion. of way, too, as Dory. Very similar yeah. wrestler. Yeah. Uh, the, the elbow smash, that the mm -hmm. European uppercut kind of looking thing, and double arm suplex, of course. Yeah. 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 So influential, the funks. Yeah. Yes. It's like their DNA is inside the wrestling, it's that deep. Yeah, um, yeah, especially so. in Japan. I'm, I'm just hoping that the, the, the listeners, today's wrestlers, you know, listeners out there, and understanding the how big Terry Funk, Dory Funk was in Japan. How about next week? Today we can wrap up, and we, we talked about NWA. Yeah, we the ended up talking Japan. about the Funks. We were talking about NWA, but uh, NWA was a big part of Japanese history too. You know, as an establishment, like uh, closest thing to. Undisputed World Heavyweight Championship and the biggest wrestling governing body, and it's like a political party of almost, yeah. But if you understand all of that and you listen to this before what we do next week, then I think all our listeners will be able to um, grasp the how important the funks were in Japan, uh, or or yeah. realize how much of a not just an impact, but I mean it's it's beyond wrestling. I mean it's. It's a, like you said, household name. People know the Funks. It's cultural yeah. impact. The idea then, of uh, because the of Terry Funk, the Stan Hansen, who you know Terry Funk basically passed the torch, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Stan Hansen, huge, huge superstar. The same kind day. of deal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in the ring, Stan Hansen beat Terry Funk with his you know Western lariat that that the torch was handed. Yeah. There's a yeah. There's a lot we can talk about next week. So let's next week let's talk about Terry and Dory Funk and their careers in Japan and and how influential they were and are even still today. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's there's I, uh, I'm sure we can get into lots of different topics. But if you have questions yeah. before next week or if you have questions or comments, how can we get a hold of you, Fumi? On Twitter at Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter or Fumi Saito on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K N I P P E R. Thanks for all the messages and all the great feedback. Uh, keep it coming. And if you have questions, comments, like I said, you can get a hold of us there. So until next time, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo. <laughs>